Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture. In the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you? Good. Happy New Year, David. Yeah, you too. We have been away since before the holiday, so it's nice to be back. I got to like stretch my podcasting muscles. I feel all atrophied. <laughs> uh, and uh, also back with us, frequent guest and producer on the podcast and senior editor on the brand marketing front, Christina Monlos. How are you, Christina? I'm well, David. How are you? <laughs> uh, I'm good. Uh, also back with us is Patrick Coffey, a senior editor covering the agency beat. Man, we got some big heavy hitters. We got all these uh, top level senior editors in here today. Patrick, welcome back. Uh, thank you, David. All right. Well, we are going to dive right into the news because, man, we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, a lot to catch up on. We're going to talk about the best ad of the week, and then we're going to cover, uh, we're going to look at CES, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show is coming up, bring in some of our tech uh, writers and editors to tell us what to look forward to with that big event. But first, the news. All right. So, Patrick, you have had quite a few uh, big scoops in the last week, so glad you could make time for us. Uh, the one that we uh, just posted shortly before uh, we are going in to record this uh, is about the ad agency holding company Omnicom has settled a lawsuit uh, over involving its agency, DDB, uh, alleging that it discriminated against a gay employee, a creative director, male uh, creative director, uh, and Essentially, this has been going on for years. Uh, so why don't you just really quickly walk us through the basics of uh, who this uh, plaintiff was and what he uh, was alleging? Uh, right. That's that's accurate, David. So the, the plaintiff is or was a creative director um, at DDB New York. He joined the agency in 2011. And in early 2015, he hired a lawyer and who filed a civil complaint in the Southern District Court of New York seeking $20 million in damages on his behalf for libel and discrimination, um, alleging essentially that his manager, the agency's former chief digital officer, discriminated against him because he was gay and 
specifically speculated that he had AIDS repeatedly and that this was um, in the initial filing, it was listed that he had been discriminated against, quote, because of an HIV disability. Uh, and it clarified that he was HIV positive at the time, but did not have AIDS. And the issue was that his manager allegedly repeatedly brought up his sexuality in front of um, uh, coworkers um, in a, a way that made him feel, in his own words, paralyzed with fear and uh, discriminated against. Yeah, these it, these weren't uh, like casual references to him being gay. It was it was you know according to the lawsuit, it was things like calling him super gay and making jokes about being promiscuous and sleeping around, uh, right. and, and then several comments that, as you mentioned, that he had AIDS, which he did not. Um, and so that that seemed to be kind of the 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 crux of this thing was just this ongoing treatment by one uh, by one supervisor, uh, correct? Yes, yes, that's right. Essentially that he would that the supervisor would continually joke about the fact that the plaintiff was gay and speculate about his status as to HIV and AIDS. So what I found really fascinating about this case is that it was actually thrown out in 2016. It was dismissed because sexual orientation is not included in the Civil Rights Act, which is kind of the whole hub of the, a discrimination case uh, with the EEOC. Uh, but on appeal, the case was brought back the next year uh, when a different judge said, actually, this is a form of gender stereotyping, which is prohibited uh, by by the Civil Rights Act. And uh, there had been some case law where, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was a woman who uh, had been getting comments from PricewaterhouseCooper where she worked saying, you need to be more feminine, you need to dress more feminine, you need to wear makeup. And they, they determined that to be a form of gender stereotyping that's prohibited. And uh, in the end, uh, that's what the judge decided this case was as an extension of, right? Yes. Uh, initially, the, the case was thrown out in 2016. The judge said that uh, she was reluctant to reach this decision, but that she had to draw a line between gender and sexual orientation because um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act protects employees against discrimination based on sex, race, nationality, or religion. But at the time, um, gender identity and you know, sexual orientation were not included there. And essentially, the the judge, the appeals judge, ruled that. Um, given the precedent of the Price Waterhouse case, it's clear that um, gender was in fact part of this. And uh, the the case that you referenced, it was a a woman who was a manager at PwC who said that her executives at the company had told her that if she wanted to become a partner, she had to behave more like a quote unquote traditional woman. And uh, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled in her favor. And so that was essentially the judge's logic in saying that the the case against Omnicom could proceed. So the case has now been settled. We don't know the terms of that, of, of we do what not. The, the plaintiff got. Um, but uh, it, Omnicom did have an interesting point where they said, um, you know, that while they still 
you know, feel. I, I think they said that the the case did not have merit, but that they said uh, that they supported the idea of extending uh, Civil Rights Act to cover people's sexual orientation. So I guess that's kind of a, a a silver lining to this whole thing is that the company did agree that this kind of behavior. It's like they didn't necessarily admit to doing it, but they said that it should be covered by the law, which was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, commentary from the defendant. Uh, you don't hear things like that too often in cases like this. Uh, to me, what's uh, what's fascinating, you know, big picture is this came up several years before a lot of the current sexual harassment discussions uh, that have taken over the industry. But it seems, and Christina, I'm curious to get your take, it seems symptomatic of the same approach of people who just said, you know, would go around saying the dumbest stuff without really stopping to consider whether it was harassment or whether it was offensive or sexist. And you know, I, I, this case and obviously all the harassment cases we've had brought to light lately really highlight that hopefully we're at an end of an era for that kind of freewheeling, you know, open commentary in the office. Yeah, I think I think a lot of what the pushback has been to, you know, um, a shift in culture has been like, but but I should be able to say whatever I want, wherever I want, and I should be who I am. And it's hard in a workplace where often, you know, people get drinks together, hang out together, like um, spend a lot of time together. You forget, or maybe maybe people forget, I don't, I don't know, that they're in a workplace. And a lot of people have worried about, you know, censoring themselves. I think that's so silly. Like you, it's very easy not to say <laughs> yeah. something racist or sexist or uh, altogether terrible. Um, so, you know, I, I certainly, I certainly think this is this is one of many things where we'll see where people can point to it and just be like, it's not that hard not to be a jerk. <laughs> like it's it's not that hard. Uh, I, you know, just um, don't discriminate or say something terrible to someone. It'll be better for everyone. Well, and this reminded me of, you know, some of the previous cases we have where executives have said things and then, you know, either oftentimes denied that they said it and then later had to admit they did. But, uh, you know, where, where they've kind of uh, basically made rape jokes or make these things and then they try to defend that later and the company defends it. And you just want to you just want to say, like, what part of you ever thought that was OK? <laughs> you know, so I, I feel like if nothing else, the big positive of a lot of this is that. These stories, a lot of which Patrick has been kind of taking the lead on reporting in the industry, so I really want to praise everything he's done in recent years uh, to keep these stories, uh, you know, top of mind and, and keep them covered. Uh, but you know, I, I hope it is having a kind of a cleansing effect on the industry of just making, you know, making the industry mature. I mean, Patrick, do you think these cases and so, you know, it, whether it's Joe Alexander, Martin Azier, you know, that any of the cases you've covered, do you think the high profile nature of these are having an impact on agency culture and that's going to keep people who might otherwise, you know, say these kinds of things from doing that? One would certainly think so. Um, but, you know, when you look at some of the policies that these companies had followed in the very recent past, it's uh, it, it's a little surprising. It's, um, I mean, one of the things that, that struck out to me, most in the in the Alexander case was the um, the employee who who reached a settlement with the Martin agency, and one of the conditions of the settlement forbade her from working for its parent company IPG in any capacity ever again. I mean, that just seems uh, it seems that 
in today's environment that that we would be less likely to see a stipulation like that. But um, I think that there are going to be fewer excuses moving forward. I've certainly heard a lot of people say that regarding the ad industry in particular, that the hours are long, the stress is high, uh, the people have shared interests. So inevitably, relationships will happen. Inevitably, there will be some inappropriate behavior, especially when there's alcohol or other drugs involved. Um, but I don't think that really cuts it anymore. Well, I appreciate you coming in to talk about that uh, because, and definitely I encourage everyone to check out uh, Patrick's story on adweek.com and keep an eye out there. Uh, a lot of Patrick's coverage lately has been uh, really fantastic in this space. And I have a feeling we're going to be seeing more and more cases uh, like this coming forward. Uh, but now I want to talk about a uh, kind of a high profile story from this past week, a uh, new book uh, called The Fire and the Fury about the Trump administration's first month. Months, written by Michael Wolf. Uh, Michael Wolf used to be, this is, a lot of people may not know this, he used to be our boss. He was the editorial director of Adweek. Uh, Tim, just before we get into the book and kind of the masterpiece of marketing that went into it, uh, tell me a little bit about Wolf. You worked with him directly. I was still a freelancer back then. I mean, mm-hmm. what's, what's he like as a person? Well, he likes to mix it up with folks. You know, he was the editor here um, from late 2010 to late 2011. Uh, He didn't last that long, and I I doubt that was a surprise even to Michael, whose skills are sort of more in the area of reporting and writing um, than than running a magazine. You know, having said that, he did completely relaunch Adweek during his time. We got a, a completely new print product. We had a totally new website. Uh, it was a time of, of quite a lot of in monetary investment in the Adweek brand, which I think did quite a lot for the brand. Um, you know, Michael, anyone who follows Michael on Twitter or knows him personally knows that he, you know, he likes to stir things up. He likes to, to, to get attention. And, and there's, um, you know, he's a good writer as well. And, and I worked with him, you know, um, quite a bit, quite closely. He was, he was always more interested in media than, than advertising per se. You know, during his time at Adweek, um, the News International phone hacking scandal was happening. And we covered that a lot more than you'd expect a, an advertising trade to cover that. Um, but, you know, he was, he, he's, he's an interesting guy. Obviously, this book is doing uh, remarkably well. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked to when I realized, you know, I think he had a story or two last year uh, in the lead up or even the year before in the lead up to the 2016 election. He seemed to be um, kind of getting in with Trump and the Trump team, and he wrote a few stories back then. I was surprised, and, and continue to be surprised, that, that that those guys let him in and gave him access, given what he had written about uh, Murdoch, you know, a few years before he joined Adweek. Uh, you know, Michael did a story about Rupert Murdoch, a very similar situation where he sort of befriended Murdoch, and Murdoch kind of trusted him, and then. Uh, when the when the, the when the book came out, Murdoch was not happy about it, and it seems to be kind of a repeat of that. Um, but you know, uh, the difference being, Murdoch is a media titan, uh, and only so many people have an interest in that. Uh, but now Michael found this uh, incredible subject in Trump and the Trump circle, and uh, the book is a bestseller already. I think it comes out today. Yeah, I mean, I should I should point out this is a guy that USA Today, you know, he's a columnist for USA Today. They ran ads for like a year showing him like an executive literally rappelling out of a window to escape having to be interviewed by Michael Wolf. You know, this is like it's literally <laughs> right, like his brand. That. You know, his brand is to be the guy you do not want to have to talk to. And essentially, the Trump administration gave him quasi unfettered access for several months. 
uh, in in those early days, uh, kind of amid the the I would guess some of the most chaotic period. Uh, so anyway, let's talk about the marketing of it, which is the part that really was fascinating. So he released a few specific uh, excerpts from the book. I think one ran in New York, one ran in uh, what was it uh, Hollywood Reporter? Hollywood Reporter, yeah. Mm-hmm. And those and you know sparked a lot of uh, conversation. But then, as I'm sure he hoped, they sparked a rebuke and a uh, even some threats from the White House. Uh, there was an 11-page letter from a White House attorney saying, you know, to the publisher, uh, saying you cannot release this book. So of course they released it early. <laughs> and, and just basically, Wolf is the kind of person who I think is only happy when people are furious at him, uh, or at least he's most happy when people are furious at him. And he never backs away from a fight. He absolutely loves it. And so I was sitting there when I saw those excerpts. I was like, I bet he is just hoping and praying for a Trump tweet. And he got it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing, you know, like, I'm not sure how much of it was genius marketing and how much of it was, you know, Trump kind of providing the marketing by engaging, you know, so loudly. And uh, I mean, he ridiculed Bannon and that became a big story and in the lead of every of every article about that, um, you know, in breaking with Steve Bannon. Uh, it mentioned the book. So, yeah, I mean, the reaction from the Trump camp was was really what spurred all the marketing of this. Christina, do you feel that this is a that this book? I mean, we obviously follow a lot of media journalism types on Twitter and everything. They're all talking about this, and and it's like the same tone with everybody is like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of Michael Wolf, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> Elizabeth yeah. Spires uh, tweeted today. She's like, listen, I have my problems with Michael Wolf, but here's your, you know, here's your twenty bucks or whatever. <laughs> Spend it wisely. Yeah, I think I think more than any other book or any other author of a Trump book, you're talking about the author just as much as you're talking about Trump. Like Wolf has his own brand, and that is very much a part of the conversation. But remember, David, as uh, Axios revealed yesterday, he has the tapes. (laughs) He got all these conversations on on tape. I mean, as anyone would do. In that situation. Oh yeah, I mean, he knew what he was getting into. He knew the the level of scrutiny <laughs> that he was he was going to have over this. But the, that's the thing that I find funny about these news stories. It's like journalist taped conversation. <laughs> wow. But the thing was that the the Trump officials, including Trump himself, did not seem to understand that this could come back to them. They thought that it was all off the record, despite the fact that Wolf was recording it. I mean, I think we've repeatedly established that the White House doesn't understand journalism and how it works. So, right, they either shut know. people out entirely, or they invite Michael Wolf in for a couple of months. Well, there was a you know the irony here being on the off the record thing being that Michael Wolf brought an editor from BuzzFeed uh, to a dinner with an Uber executive. Uh, that was supposed to be off the record, and BuzzFeed ended up reporting on it because of comments made about how they were basically targeting a, I believe, a female journalist who had been uh, mm-hmm. investigating Uber, and that sparked a huge. That was one of the early, like, kind of U- Uber is being sketchy articles. But Wolf was furious about that. Like, he felt betrayed that he had brought someone to a uh, off the record event and that it was covered. So that I've been thinking about that off and on when I hear you know these people saying like, but but Wolf insists that everyone knew they were on the record, whether they understood that or not. <laughs> like he at least made it clear. Um, you know, so so in the 
days uh, after these excerpts start running. As I mentioned, they released the book early. Uh, Wolf was on the Today Show uh, at the day that we record this. He was saying that his credibility, he said, my credibility is being questioned by a man, meaning Donald Trump, who has less credibility than perhaps anyone who has ever walked on earth at this point. So <laughs> Wolf is clearly like he he knows exactly what he's getting into here, and he is girding himself for a, a running uh, fight. I can't wait to hear what nickname Donald Trump gives him. He hasn't... Uh, he hasn't, oh, come, yeah. he hasn't mm. come up with one. And, and Wolf is such an easy one to come up with. So we shall see. All right. So that's it for uh, the news this week. Let's go to Tim for this week's ad worth watching. Tim, what do you got for us? So this week I wanted to talk about uh, OK Cupid's new print and out of home campaign um, from Wyden and Kennedy, New York. Uh, an agency that had a really great 2017, and they were, you know, the larger agency. Of course, the network was our global agency of the year last year. The New York office had a really strong year specifically, and uh, they started off 2018 really well with this OKCupid okay campaign. Um, the theme is DTF. Um, I don't want to offend our younger listeners um, <laughs> who may not know what DTF stands for. It stands for down to F-U-C-K. Fornicate. <laughs> yes. Um, and so it's this old acronym, kind of offensive, uh, often derogatory uh, acronym. And so Wyden and OKCupid okay decide to kind of rethink it and reimagine what DTF uh, could be. And the backdrop here is that the modern dating scene um, is kind of notoriously bleak and horrible. And, and you know, the, the whole swiping culture in the age of Tinder has kind of dehumanized people who are trying to, uh, you know, trying to find, uh, you know, their soulmate. And so um, a number of dating sites have have tried to kind of put the humanity back in dating. And OkCupid has now joined that with these really striking ads. Um, they, they worked with, Wyden worked with uh, Maurizio Catalan, the artist, and a photographer named Pierpaolo Ferrari. Uh, those two guys are the creators of Toilet Paper Magazine, which is a very kind of a crazy photography-based magazine. And so they worked with those guys, and they came up with these uh, headlines where the F in DTF um, has been changed to mean something else. So you have um, down to fall head over heels, down to fixed dating, down to fight about the president, anything but down what DTF used to mean. And then these headlines are kind of paired with um, really bright, poppy visuals. And so uh, kind of relating to the headline. And I love this campaign. I thought the, the visually, it was really, really striking. The typography was really cool. The DTF is shown in this kind of blocky, kind of retro 3D uh, style. And uh, dating deserves better is the, is the kind of intriguing tagline at the bottom of these things. And they did a ton of them. And there's probably, I don't know, there's dozens of these executions. And I just thought they were super clever, super clever approach and just really beautiful to look at. I mean, I know they're running out of home in New York and I imagine, I think they're in the subways and elsewhere. I imagine, you know, they really uh, stand out down there and yeah, I, I mean, I just thought, uh, you know, dating sites have been doing really cool stuff lately. Uh, Hinge did those long copy out of home ads last year that Barton F. Kraft did. Uh, Tinder just this week, uh, Christina, you wrote about a new Tinder spot. Um, yeah. I feel like the dating sites are doing amazing lately with their marketing. Well, um, I'll have to fill you in on on some Tinder drama that I cannot talk about on this podcast. Uh, but what what I will say is that I think a lot of dating uh, apps and sites, um, you know, for a long time, they've been associated with one thing. And I think it, it's in the marketing using um, using 
like a recognition that dating is so much more than that one thing and that companionship is is whatever you want it to be and um we're seeing some really creative executions of that and that's really cool and fun and also just like the why didn't Kennedy's work with this campaign the um okay cupid one is just I don't know it's so bright so poppy it's exactly what you want to see in January when it's very cold and it's like a whiteout most of the time it's I, I don't know fun work yeah, I thought uh, I thought the the ads really stood out too, and and you know, the the interesting thing I spoke to the CMO over at OKCupid, okay Melissa Hobley, and I found it interesting. You know, you talk about about dating being kind of bigger than the one thing, and I I I, I can totally that comes across in this campaign so much. And to the I found it interesting too that they um, they included a couple of very politically themed ads. You know, there's one that said down to fight about our president. And there's another one about the far right. I think it says down to filter out the far right. And it shows a hand um, over a, hanging, hanging over a toilet, dropping a gun into a toilet. And that was a pretty bold uh, statement. And, you know, Melissa said, listen, like, uh, I guess this past year they added a Trump filter to their list of questions that they ask people when they sign up. I don't know exactly <laughs> how that works. Um, but I find it interesting that that all these brands are kind of engaging with, with politics in, now because politics is such a part of everyone's daily experience that to to ignore it or to be afraid of it is is – you know, to, to almost be irrelevant today. And so even a dating site will, will engage uh, with some kind of political, dis, you know, discussion. There's also a lot of executions here that, that uh, are about diversity and acceptance and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, there's, there's gender identity um, kind of mentioned here. There's, there's uh, several same-sex couples. You know, it's a very inclusive campaign. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, a great choice, too, to use these artists. I mean, it's a very, very artful campaign, and the photography really makes it here. I think, you know, it's interesting. I talked to the creatives over at Widen, too, and they said this whole campaign was initially just supposed to be text-based. There wasn't supposed to be any imagery at all. And, you know, the, the, the way that the images play off the headlines in, in these executions, I think, is really delightful in the whole campaign. You know, Widen New York does great print work in general. They've done, they've done amazing work for Equinox in particular uh, over the past couple of years. You know, they did the out-of-home work for Delta last year. They, they really are great at um, doing striking, you know, just headline and visual kind of work. And this, this certainly joins that legacy. Yeah, each one feels like it could be a magazine cover, you know, about, about a kind of topical social issue or, you know what I mean? It's like they just have that cool trend article kind of vibe to them in a, in a great illustrative style. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic work. Uh, well, thank you, Tim, for rounding that up. And uh, now we are going to let Christina go about her newsy business, and we're going to rotate in some tech team. Christina, thank you for joining us, as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, tech folks soon. All right, we're back, and we are down to... I, I don't have a good F on uh, talking about CEF. Down to, fr frankly, talk about CES... Uh, and we have got our two of our top tech reporters. Uh, we've got senior editor on the Tech Beat, Lauren Johnson. Welcome back, Lauren. Good to be here. And uh, Marty Swant, a uh, a staff writer on the Tech Beat. Welcome back, Marty. Well, thanks for having me. All right, you both are going to be at CES. Am I right? Indeed. All right, so it's coming up very soon. Um, and. 
basically, uh, you know, I, I believe last year we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I'm always curious, what do you feel is the appeal for marketers uh, with CES and what sets it apart from something like South by? Well, I can jump in first. Um, you know, one of the things is, I mean, with South by there's a lot of brand activations, you know, but it's a lot of just stuff happening. But with CES, you get, you know, 4,000 companies that are showcasing, you know, the technology that they're either working on or that they're about to release or, or just recently released. And so for marketers, it gives them a chance to see what's out there. What are people doing? What are people thinking about? Uh, even though the majority of the stuff on the showroom floor probably won't ever make it to market, it just lets people see where people think that things are heading, even if they don't actually end up heading that way. Lauren, do you think it's a, I mean, if you were advising a kind of tech-oriented, digital-oriented marketer, do you think it's worthwhile going to CES? I've actually, um, Marty and I each wrote a couple different stories for this issue, in addition to the features we're going to talk about. And I uh, thought it was interesting because I've gone to CES a couple times now. Um, and at least from the agency perspective, a lot of um, some of the bigger shops like Omnicom uh, typically does this big series. It's like a, basically their own version of programming. Or they've done it in the past. They do it at Cannes. They do it at other conferences. Um, and this year they're switching it up uh, a little bit for CES and doing more. I believe Omnicom is going to have like 40-some tours of the floor with clients and the you know, kind of the rationale behind that is that people are over sitting in conferences like you can at every other conference during the year and they want to actually see some of this stuff, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. And that's that's why I think a lot of people like going to CES because you can physically see stuff that you're not going to see the rest of the year. Offering tours is a brilliant idea because I've not been to CES, I've been, but I've been to like the NAB show, which is almost as big. And, you know, those floors, that Las Vegas Convention Center, uh, you know, it's overwhelming in a way that the word overwhelming barely <laughs> can even describe. Yeah. It's like you could spend four hours walking and feel like all you ever saw was like one eightieth of the thing. So yeah, d- d- offering tours is a, is a brilliant idea, especially you know for clients. Well, let's let's talk about the tech that's going to be hot this year. I feel like that list has been pretty much the same list like every year for the last five years, um, but that we've made incremental progress. Marty, you did a piece uh, about VR and um, kind of it's, it feels like this time every year. We talk about is it is this going to be uh, VR's breakout year? You know, the original argument was there's not enough hardware out there. Then the hardware came out. No, there's not, not enough content. Is this the year that we get the Goldilocks zone of there's enough affordable hardware and enough content that people will actually get into VR? Yeah, that's that's, that's exactly it. You know, Goldilocks is a great uh, analogy for it. But um, but one of the things I've been really curious about is like the chicken or the egg thing, right? It's like how many headsets need to be in the market until. Uh, people to start spending more money on content because this stuff is not always cheap. I mean, uh, some programs being in development right now cost nearly a million dollars. I mean, you can do something for maybe a few hundred thousand, but that's still not um, chump change, you know, for a lot of maybe like especially smaller agencies or smaller brands. And so um, so the piece I did, I talked to maybe two, two gosh, Two, two dozen or more, uh, you know, tech companies and agencies and marketers uh, about what are they seeing. And a lot of people say they want to do more with content and they want to get in there early. But I mean, and a lot of people say that scale at this point is kind of gravy. Like it's, it's still good to invest in, but um, maybe in smaller, smaller amounts. So Lauren, what's your take on VR? I mean, do you, do you remain kind of 
healthily skeptical about it, or do you feel like that this is going to be a year that we start to see that that growth go beyond you know a few million units to tens of million units? Uh, you, you know, when are we going to hit that tipping point, if ever? You know, I yeah, I don't know if it will be this year necessarily, but I do I do think that um, the hardware side of it is the, in my opinion, is is the bigger hurdle. I mean, anecdotally, I have a Samsung Gear that I got. Last year, um, it's been in my closet for about eleven months now. <laughs> uh, so it it's just it's it the hardware piece of it until I mean I'm really I think for me the tipping point is going to be able to come when I can see really great stuff on my smartphone um, because I already have my smartphone it's part of my daily life and it's just something that's so ingrained for me personally that's when I'll that's when I'll get excited about it but the idea of having to like haul out this big uh, VR set to watch Hulu in VR isn't uh, all that appealing just to, to me personally. We we got a, a Nintendo Switch for Christmas and like just simply separating the controllers because it's basically you can use controller as one unit or break it into two. Just breaking that thing apart is too much trouble for me. Like half the time I'm like, I really don't feel like dealing with that controller. So much less like pulling out an entire headset and, and screwing around with it to try to, you know what I mean? It's just one of those where if I want to sit around and maybe it's just where I am in my life compared to like other times when I've had more time, it's just, it's it's a high, bur- or, you know, high hurdle to get over. I feel like the, a lot of people, that's why a lot of people point to AR, the augmented reality being more practical. Uh, Marty, you do a wrap up in this week's issue of some of the devices that are going to be really hot this year, especially in the VR space. But it feels like the Magic Leap 1 goggles were one that when those were announced, people were like, actually interested and, and like felt that it had real potential. What, what can you tell us about those? Yeah. So the Magic Leap 1 is the device that was announced, gosh, like a almost a month ago. Um, and, and they look cooler than a lot of different uh, headsets that are out there right now. Um, it looks like a pair of wraparound sunglasses, um, more like Ray-Bans, I guess, that are a little bulkier, almost like you have like kind of like frog eyes on a pair of Ray-Bans. Um, but a lot of people say it, it could be good because you're, you're mixing the, the, the real world with the digital world. Um, for example, like uh, they did this interesting thing with uh, Cigarose just to show the potential where you had Cigarose in the Icelandic kind of ethereal band do this um, AR performance, so you get like this digitized version of the band, and so that's definitely been a thing, a thing for AR. But honestly, like uh, back to the VR hardware, I know a lot of people talk about not wanting to walk around with a headset, and yeah, I would, I would never want to be on a train in New York wearing a headset. But I mean, everyone still <laughs> buys televisions. You know, everyone still has a seventy-inch screen in their in their home, and and nobody ever talks about lugging that everywhere. And so I, I really do think VR is something you still do at home, maybe in your living room, maybe you have it on a bookshelf, and I. I while you're enclosed, um, a lot of companies are starting to work with social VR so you feel more um, together. Like, for example, Facebook this year is going to be releasing o- Oculus Go, which is like a $200 headset, doesn't require a smartphone, and it'll be pretty basic compared to a lot of the, the VR out there, but you can watch VR content, you can uh, hang out in 360 videos with your friends in, in, in the version of like little avatars. Um, so I really do think it's still a, a home device. Um, but AR is interesting because you might be able to bring that to work or you might be able to like go in a park and and watch a, an AR concert. Or, you know, I know that Niantic, um, the company that created Pokemon Go, um, they're coming out with a Harry Potter version of AR, I think, sometime this year. Um, and I forget the timeline exactly. But, you know, if people are wearing headsets, they don't have to hold their phones in front of their face the whole time, which might be safer when you're crossing the street. Yeah, I, I feel like... Um 
the you know AR just has that that practical kind of hybrid to Lauren's point it's like you have your phone and I get what you're saying about you know having the devices you know we get used to devices that we don't think we will but on the other hand like you've got your phone you've it's got these high powered cameras like you don't it, it just fills a lot of the gap um but you know Lauren what, what else are you looking for this year beyond VR I mean it, it feels like this kind of year where it's less about what the technology can do and and more about how people are actually using this stuff now that it all works and exists uh, you know what else are you looking forward to uh, I think we're probably going to do some videos and coverage around um, all of the wacky IOT stuff there which is always a crowd pleaser and people love to see some of those like the connected dog bed and uh, all of that all of that sort of stuff so that that stuff's always kind of interesting to see and the question just is like how you know how can brands um, what what's the insight that goes into a connected dog collar that maybe you can use if you're a CPG brand? Um, but one of the cool things that I think I think is going to be coming out um, next week is L'Oreal is doing some neat stuff with IoT. So a couple of years ago they launched this. It's called a smart patch, but it's basically a little a little patch that you stick on your skin. It's connected to a mobile app. Um, they're given away for free when you buy sunscreen and the app keeps track of how much UV exposure you get. And so now they've kind of translated um, that kind of bigger, bulkier patch that would sit on your arm, for say, uh, into a nail decal, which is pretty cool. Um, so it's kind of this evolution going from the big bulky tech into something that, you know, women, nail, nail art's kind of fun and something that you would you might want to wear uh, without the knowledge that it's also tracking all of your sun uh, exposure. So that kind of stuff is cool because I think you're seeing some brands start to get some learnings into IoT and designing these things in a way that people will actually want to use them. Now, you also, you wrote a piece for this week's issue about gender and diversity. We, we mentioned on an earlier podcast that uh, CES took some heat over kind of their lack of female keynotes. Uh, you mentioned your story that I, I think a lot of the top women uh, at this year's event are going to be sharing the stage, right, as like one big jumbo panel, right, instead of getting a kind of a solo spotlight. Uh, yes, there are not any... There are several women that are going to be included in keynote panels, but um, yeah, in terms of the solo speaking opportunities, those are all uh, for men. Now, and the other thing that was kind of disheartening is you mentioned a few stats in there about, uh, I believe, the percentage of, of women in, who, uh, who are starting up tech companies has kind of stalled out around 9%. Um, and do you get the sense that progress is really being made or, or in reporting this and uh, talking to the women for this story, did you feel like it has been kind of more stalled than people might realize? I think it's it's way more stalled than people realize and especially the tech industry now that the you know obviously we've got um, a lot of revelation revolutions coming to the surface in the media and entertainment world around sexual harassment and gender uh, equality but I, I tech has always been that industry that it's just there I think a lot of people just kind of accept that and it, they haven't really there's there's been a lot of talk about stuff but no no I would not say that there's been a lot of progress. Uh, and I, I think that's 
incredibly apparent by CES's lineup this year. Yeah, and oftentimes, uh, I've not been to CES, but I feel like a lot of these conferences, you really feel it when you get there. Because, you know, you can affect these events. can They, they can build a speaker roster that's got some diversity and, and gender. And in this case, they didn't necessarily do that. But then you show up at the event. You know pretty quick if it's basically just all white guys or all dudes. Uh, and, and so a lot of times, like, I feel like, have you gotten that sense from CES when you actually get there, Lauren? Definitely. And um, I guess to be clear, it's not necessarily just a problem that's specific to CES. We, I've noticed the same thing when I've gone to Mobile World Congress, which is in Barcelona. The same can be same for same for De Mexico, which is an annual event uh, in Germany. Some of these bigger tech conferences in general, a lot of times, you know, you'll be the only woman in uh, a group of men. And not to say that that there's not a, a gender problem in the advertising community and, and broadly. But I will say when I went to Cannes, it, it, be, it was a little bit less noticeable, not to say that there, sh- there shouldn't be more women in executive positions because there should be, but it, it's not as... Um, it's not it's not as apparent as it is at the tech conferences. Now, I, I really liked the approach you took for the piece this week. Uh, you profiled five women who are helping advance diversity in tech. Some I had heard of, honestly, maybe only just one. I had heard of the founder of founder of Girls Who Code, uh, which is a program that I, I've supported uh, as a daughter, uh, you know, as someone who has a daughter who's really into coding. I think it's an amazing program. But but tell us, uh, you know, we, we don't don't have time to walk through all five. I definitely encourage everyone to check out uh, the story on adweek.com. But uh, tell us about one or two that really stuck out to you as, as doing some really impressive things. So one of the first people that I came across that, yeah, I had not, I had not um, heard of her beforehand, but she's doing a lot of really cool stuff uh, around AI at Sage in London. Her name is Kriti Sharma. Um, and her whole, what her whole work is basically geared at making AI more inclusive. So she's really interested in studying how um, people name AI existence. I mean, it's her point is being like, it's no coincidence that Alexa is a woman um, because she can do more of those kind of tasks around the house. She turns on your lights, she turns on music. It leads itself, just the technology itself leads to a a female voice, whereas you have um, Watson uh, is named after a guy. And that that tends to be used by some of the, you know, more like heavy hitting marketers use it, but also healthcare companies use it. And it's just, it's a little bit more on like the nitty gritty business side. And it, that to her explains why it's named after a guy. Um, so I think she, she's doing a lot of stuff that, quite honestly, I hadn't really even thought about some of these gender issues that exist in AI and also trying to kind of reverse tech's history a little bit. Like these systems and AI systems have so much data in them that are, are inherently biased at, at this point. Um, and so she's trying to kind of, you know, course correct that a little bit and make it so that we have a more gender uh, fair future in tech. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, you really notice that the more you get into voice activation stuff and you've got Google Home as a default female voice, uh, you know, Alexa, of course, Siri, you know, it really is one of those things where almost the more the these industries emerge, the more these trends become obvious. Definitely. Um, I'm trying to think of who else I really thought was interesting. Catherine Zaleski, who uh, has actually spent a number of years in media at the Huffington Post and now this news and did a bunch of um, stuff in the media world has a really interesting concept too. She's uh, started this company called Power to Fly, which I would kind of describe as a female version of LinkedIn, really. Um, And their whole 
prospect is to actually make sure that these companies are getting diverse and um, lists of candidates for big brands like a Casper and American Express um, to pull from so that you're not going back to that kind of same well of talent. Uh, so it's just kind of an interesting way that technology is being used to solve the talent problem. Yeah. Well, again, I really encourage everyone to check out adweek.com. Check out this week's issue of the magazine uh, for that story and for Marty's Roundup and for lots more uh, in our CES preview coverage. And definitely check out uh, adweek.com throughout the week of CES to get live coverage. Uh, as Lauren said, I can't wait to see the roundups of all the weird stuff that you guys find. Uh, that is definitely the best parts of CES and South by is just seeing those weird things that may not get a lot of coverage in other places, but we love finding them. So uh, thank you both uh, so much for coming and uh, have a blast at CES. Uh, real quick, I wanted to remind everyone you can email us at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Uh, we did get a question this week. Uh, Tim, this one's for you. A listener named Terry wants to know, will we ever see the E-Trade baby again, perhaps as a younger brother or sister? <laughs> uh, with Super Bowl coming up fast, I was curious. What do you think? Is E-Trade baby ever going to make another comeback? I highly doubt it. Although, never say never, I guess. Please, yeah, no. man. I mean, could <laughs> could you have guessed like 15 years ago that we'd be seeing ALF everywhere? <laughs> like, like Certain things just make weird comebacks that you just never expect. That's true. I could see like the eBay teenager... Because I think he would be a teenager now. Oh, E-Trade, yeah. The, the, and that's, yeah, that would be like, uh, you got to keep it like digitally uh, animated, you know? So it's like a teen <laughs> teenager, but with a, a eerily digitally animated face. <laughs> now, the, the fun fact about the E-Trade baby is it was voiced by Tor Myron, who was the, um, the creative director at Gray, who's now running Apple's marketing over at, over at Apple. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. That's that funny. That makes me wonder, so Trivia. what is the puppy monkey baby going to look like when it's a teenager? Oh, not, not good. <laughs> uh, well, definitely, uh, we're going to, man, we have so much Super Bowl stuff coming up, so we'll spare everyone else any further conversation about it this week. But uh, yeah, man, lots more. Lots more to talk about very quickly and soon. Uh, so tune in uh, next week for that. Our theme music is by home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. Please take a moment, if you haven't already, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify now, too. So uh, do a search for us on Spotify. And uh, yeah, we will be back next week. Talk to you then. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.